Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The End of Salutary Neglect. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Victories Hangover. We all came to this course with some preconceived notions about the revolution. Maybe you were taught something about the causes and events, or you've seen memes or movies or blog posts or some stupid social media posting or a political talking head uh, saying what the founders wanted. So what have you been taught about the revolution? When did it start? Where were the causes? Who was involved? Some people might talk about taxes, the Boston Tea Party, the Quartering Act, Declarations of Independence, Washington, Jefferson, maybe Paul Revere, and apparently gun control. And there's some truth to all this, but this course should have shown you a long time ago that there is a long trajectory of history, that there were several events in the colonial period before the 1760s that agitated the American colonists and set them on the paths towards independence. John Adams once wrote, quote, But what do you mean by the American Revolution? Do you mean the American War? The revolution was effected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and the heart of the people, a change in the religious sentiments of their duties and obligation. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American Revolution. End quote. The point of this lecture and others should show you that the American Revolution was not inevitable. Every event was contingent on one another, and we will see that the road to revolution was a long one, and very few people agreed on what they were doing or where they were going. The founders were an eclectic group of people who vehemently disagreed on confronting Great Britain. They disagreed on whether independence should be their goal, and they most especially disagreed on what government will emerge from the conflagration. All of that is to say that do not buy into simplistic views of the country's founding. Context and contingency are the twin pillars of history. Although the British had won the French and Indian War, several problems loomed. The British now had a huge empire that was difficult to manage. There were 22 British colonies in the Western Hemisphere, including those in the Caribbean, like Jamaica and Barbados, East and West Florida, Canada, and then the 13 American colonies that would later declare independence. Next, there were booming populations, especially in North America. From 1750 to 1770, the American population doubled from 1 million to more than 2 million people. And in 1700, the American population was only 1 20th the size of the British and Irish populations. But by 1770, it was 1 -fifth. And Ben Franklin even predicted that the center of the British Empire would shift to America. Because of these exploding American populations, that meant that settlers were flooding into the backcountry and becoming harder to control. There were closer connections between Philadelphia, Boston, and New York City to London than in the backcountry 20 miles up the road. Next, there was an unstable government. George III wasn't a crazy tyrant, but he was an extremely inexperienced and stubborn young man who did not cooperate with Parliament. And he had a series of out-of-touch ministers who were proved unable to meet the challenges of imperial government. In addition, there was a massive post-war economic slump, which usually accompanies the end of any war. 
In North America, where many British regulars bought American goods throughout the war, well, they're leaving, which means that that demand goes away. And the British do decide to keep 10,000 regulars on the continent to maintain the peace and protect against Indians, but these are always on the frontier, and they prove both controversial and expensive. Troops' expenses plus big war debt means that the British need money, so Parliament decided to reorganize the empire, to tighten the screws and raise taxes, especially for Americans. Another major problem is the Proclamation Line of 1763. This prevented various Americans from going west to exploit Native American lands. And this angers men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Patrick Henry, who were speculating in western lands. They were trying to get rich quick. And so they viewed this act as tyrannical. Combined with this is the average American who is struggling through a stagnating society and who want land because they all agree that land is key to independence, which is necessary to be politically active. Please advance to the next slide entitled Sugar Act. Before we delve into the events that led to the end of salutary neglect, we should note that the 13 colonies had never been very united. One contemporary described the colonies as, quote, ever at variance and foolishly jealous, end quote. Every time some plan was put forward to have the colonies unite for a common cause, even during war, they were rejected. When the Albany Plan of Union in 1754 was defeated in the midst of the French and Indian War, a frustrated Benjamin Franklin exclaimed, quote, Everyone cries a union is necessary, but when they come to the manner and form of the union, their weak noodles are perfectly distracted. End quote. The point is that if the colonies are so divided, even in times of war, how could they possibly unite against the British government? The answer is a series of misunderstandings and escalations will lead the colonists to see the British as a threat which will enable them to unite in common cause, at least for a while. Now, the British had attempted to tax the colonies before without much success. The Molasses Act of 1733 was a tax on molasses from outside the British colonies, and this was largely opposed by the colonists. The tax was rarely paid, and many smuggled in order to avoid it. If it had actually been collected, the tax would have effectively closed that source to New England and destroyed much of their rum industry. Yet smuggling, bribery, or intimidation of customs officials effectively nullified the law. After a brief effort to enforce the act in Massachusetts in the 1740s, the English government tacitly accepted defeat and foreign molasses was smuggled into the northern colonies in an ever-increasing quantity. Thus, New England merchants survived, but only by nullifying an act of Parliament. This all changed with the Sugar Act, passed by Parliament in 1764. This put new taxes on foreign sugar, cloth, coffee, wine and indigo that was imported into the American colonies. Now this is an external customs tax, something most colonists believe Parliament did have the right to do. They're not mad about the constitutional aspect of the law, just the economic impact. The Sugar Act also included measures to regulate colonial trade because, as I said, Americans preferred to buy molasses from the French Caribbean colonies who sold it at lower prices. To stop this, Parliament had previously placed a tax on French molasses, but many Americans had successfully smuggled and avoided it. Now, 
Parliament wanted to crack down. Smugglers would be tried in vice-admiralty courts without sympathetic colonial juries whose powers were greatly expanded. In addition, the British Navy was given greater power to inspect American ships to make sure that they were only trading in certain items with Great Britain. This did lead to increased profits in the West Indies, but greatly depressed New England's economy. In 1765, 50 Boston merchants agreed to stop buying British luxury imports in protest, a sign of things to come. So the point in the major takeaway is that look at these vice-admiralty courts. That's a jury without peers, which means that this directly influences the making of the U.S. Constitution. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Year of Meteors. In March 1765, Parliament passed the Stamp Act, which put a tax on all legal documents, diplomas, newspapers, almanacs, and playing cards in the colonies. Now, this is a direct internal tax, not an external customs duty, and this infuriates the colonists. Historian T.H. Breen said, quote, Like more modern people who have experienced what they regard as a break in the flow of time, like the destruction of the World Trade Center or the assassination of President John Kennedy, these colonists felt the sudden weight of history upon their shoulders, end quote. In May of 1765, the Parliament passed the Quartering Act, which said the colonists had to pay public funds to house and supply British troops stationed there. Now, one, the Americans don't want to pay for this, and two, this does not exactly mesh with the idea of the domestic sphere. What does it say about some British soldier living next to you, or maybe even in your home and barn, so, obviously, many men will be worried about what will happen when they aren't home to control their dependents. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Colonial Resistance. The colonists begin to boycott British goods, and this is called non-importation, and the goal is to hurt the British economy, especially the Caribbean sugar trade. And early on, non-importation was mostly led by merchants, who did a relatively poor job at enforcing it. Another method of resistance was the meeting of the Stamp Act Congress in October of 1765. 37 delegates from nine colonies gathered in New York and drew up the Declaration of Rights, which stated, among other things, quote, that is inseparably essential to the freedom of a people and the undoubted rights of Englishmen, that no taxes shall be imposed on them but with their own consent, given personally or by their representatives, that the people of these colonies are not, and from their local circumstances cannot be, represented in Great Britain, that the only representatives of the people of these colonies are persons chosen therein, by themselves, and that no taxes ever have been or can be constitutionally imposed on them, but by their respective legislatures. End quote. In other words, this means no taxation without representation. This means the American colonists wanted actual representation in Parliament, elected representatives from the colonies sitting in the Parliament. But the British replied that all Englishmen had virtual representation, and the idea is that Parliament represented all Englishmen regardless of where they came from. And at this time, it makes sense, because the town of Dunwich, England, sent representatives to Parliament even though the town had fallen into the North Sea by that point. 
while Birmingham and Manchester, two very large cities in Great Britain, sent no representatives to Parliament. So I suppose it's important to note that you should update institutions to fit modern situations. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Resistance Part 2. In the colonial era, there were very few public buildings, so the only place where you could meet and talk is the local tavern or inn. And that means that taverns became places of political discussion and socialization. Why not have meetings at home? Well, spies and snitches. It's pretty obvious when you have a bunch of rabble-rousers come over, but at the tavern, it's in public, and no one notice, because everyone's grumbling. It's safe. Well, at taverns, groups of ordinary people would organize into mobs, who then went to protest, burn effigies of royal officials, lead mock funerals, threaten stamp collectors, and forced many to resign. Usually, you'd meet at the tavern first, drink a little bit of liquid courage before going out. In Boston, mobs destroyed the homes of the appointed stamp tax collector and even the lieutenant governor. The tax collector was a man called Andrew Oliver, and people didn't like him. So a mob goes to his warehouse, and he isn't there. So they just destroy the thing, and then they go to his home and hurl rocks to bust out his windows. They then take an effigy of him and stamp on it. I mean, that's a bad pun protest, stamping on it, literally stamping on his likeness, because it's the Stamp Act. Crazy colonial humor. Well, Oliver resigns, no thank you very much, I'm out of here. Well, then the lieutenant governor's home is targeted. This time, the mob goes to his house and they destroy it. But I mean they don't just throw rocks at the windows. No, they also break in the doors, smash the furniture, cut up the paintings, trash his clothing cut down all of his trees in his garden, and then their process of removing the roof when daylight stops them. That's a very specific mob. Like, you have very industrious people. Alright, you're gonna go do this, you're gonna go do that. It's, it's just very amusing to me. Despite this vandalism, we should note that mobs are not like modern-day street gangs of thugs. There's a long tradition of mobs in English history. People believe mobs arose from the body of the people to check government tyranny, and they also served as de facto law enforcement in a society without professional police. And in a way, they can also restrain violence as they are more organized, so they have directed violence against our particular target. Now, evidence indicates that Boston's common people were upset about more than just the Stamp Act. They were also upset because Boston's economy is hurting, and the local government had supported deflationary policies that hurt debtors. These commoners' protests are an example of what some historians view as a separate social revolution that happens alongside the American political revolution against Great Britain. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Sons of Liberty. So, who are the leaders of these mobs? The Sons of Liberty. Usually, these emerge out of the existing fraternal groups like fire companies and other artisanal groups. Leaders are mostly from the middle and upper ranks of society, though the sons also sought to incorporate as many people as possible. They leveraged artisan groups for cohesion and order, and the leaders attempt to limit mob violence, which they believed undermined their cause, but sometimes mob just got out of control. It is important to note that at this point the sons oppose the Stamp Act and not the British government. No one is arguing for independence yet. While in 1766, 
Parliament responded to all this unrest by repealing the Stamp Acts. So the Sons of Liberty disband for now. Please advance to the next slide entitled Resistance Revived. In 1767, Parliament passed the Townshend Revenue Act, which put a tax on lead, paint, paper, and tea imported into the colonies. Colonists responded by reassembling their Sons of Liberty groups and reviving non-importation. Non-importation, or refusing to import British goods, mostly occurred in the North, which makes sense since it's led by merchants. But in the South, they emphasize non-consumption on the part of the population, since merchants are not as heavily involved. And again, this is important because British goods, especially colorful cloth, are highly valued as symbols of status. Thus, the act of not buying them takes on added significance. Many different colonists, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, north and south, joined these movements. Colonists wore homespun cloth instead of British-made cloth, so this means that women's participation is crucial. Women joined the Daughters of Liberty, who held spinning bees and spun cloths and acted in other socially accepted gender roles to support the movement. What you should notice is that it is ordinary Americans signing petitions, promising not to buy British goods, and who are enforcing these petitions and punishing violators. In the process, this means that many Americans are learning how to do local politics. One historian argued that non-importation ultimately inspired a sense of continental trust, unity, and the origins of American identity. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Boston Occupied. In 1768, four regiments of British redcoats arrived in Boston. The British had been moving their regulars stationed in the west to eastern cities where they could be more easily and cheaply resupplied. But these troops were sent to Boston mainly to maintain order, and this freaked the colonists out. For years, they'd been watching for signs of tyranny, and the presence of a standing army in peacetime was considered the number one sign. The colonists very greatly feared standing armies. Colonists saw this as growing evidence that the British were trying to enslave them. And this goes back to British country thought, which said that the fear of standing armies is a consistent theme of British and American history until the 20th century. Seeing troops confirmed the worst conspiracy theories about British tyranny, and by 1769, there were 4,000 British redcoats in Boston, a city whose total population was only 16,000. As a result, occasional altercations broke out between citizens and soldiers. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Lead Up to a Massacre. On March 2nd, 1770, a British redcoat went to the Boston Rope Walk, where ship's rigging was made and he was looking for a part-time job. One Bostonian told him that he would hire him if he, quote, went and cleaned my shithouse, end quote. They then came to blows, and soldiers and citizens pitched in, so it's a massive street brawl. On March 5th, a redcoat officer in Boston got his hair cut, and when he found out that his barber was an untrained apprentice, he refused to pay him. When the apprentice chased after him to try and get his money, he received a beating. Later that night, an angry Boston mob gathered outside the customs house to protest. 
the captain, Thomas Preston, rushed his troops to the scene where he found soldiers being harassed and pelted with snowballs, rocks, ice, and oyster shells. In the midst of this exchange, someone shouted the word fire, and the soldiers opened fire, killing five colonists. Among the dead was Crispus Attucks, the first African-American martyr for the cause of liberty. Bostonians quickly labeled this the Boston Massacre, and you can see from the picture the famous engraving by the silversmith Paul Revere. And this is just flat-out propaganda. Both sides attempt to spin this situation in their favor, with Thomas Gage writing back to Parliament saying that this is nothing more than a false flag operation, while Sam Adams went and wrote many, many articles saying that this was just a British conspiracy to kill people. And this should tell us a lot about conspiracy theories and why evidence and authorship is important for historical study. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Repeal in the Trial. In April, Parliament repealed all of the Townsend duties except for the one on tea. And the British minister said that the tea tax was preserved, quote, as a mark of the supremacy of Parliament and an efficient declaration of their right to govern the colonies, end quote. You should see that British leaders are largely out of touch with what is going on in the colonies. In October and November, the Redcoats who participated in the massacre were tried in Boston. Preston and his soldiers were defended by the future founder of the country, John Adams, who was determined to prove that a British officer could get a fair trial in America. Adams described the Boston mob that had been fired upon as a, quote, motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes and mulattoes, Irish teagues, and outlandish jacktars, end quote. Go ahead and click on the hyperlink on the PowerPoint and watch the YouTube video of John Adams' closing statement in the Boston Massacre trial. Okay, so you'd go watch it? I absolutely love that scene. Well, the result of the trial was that Preston was acquitted, and only two of the Redcoats were convicted of manslaughter and punished by having their thumbs branded. So, it's important to note that one, Adams did all of this which was going to give him great acclaim, but also left him exposed and a target for the city's hatred. In addition, it should also tell us that everyone deserves a fair trial. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Tea Act. The next three years were relatively quiet, but the quiet ended in 1773 when Parliament passed the Tea Act. This did not put a tax on imported tea, because the Townshend tax is still around. Rather, the Act said that the British East India Company, which was on the verge of bankruptcy, could henceforth sell its tea directly from India to the American colonies, thus bypassing British and American middlemen. Thus, the colonists could get cheaper tea if they bought it directly from the British East India Company. But American middlemen, like John Hancock, who had been smuggling Dutch tea into the colonies for several years, saw this as an attempt to undermine them. They didn't want Americans to buy East India Company tea and pay the tea tax, so they sought to prevent the company's boats from docking. Colonists prevented ships from unloading tea in New York City, Charlestown, Philadelphia, but in Boston, the situation got out of hand. In December 1773, 16 Bostonians, dressed as Mohawk Indians, dumped 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor, 
which cost over 10,000 pounds, which is the equivalent of $1 million in today's currency. While many modern Americans consider this to be a watershed moment, it was quickly forgotten. And the episode actually wasn't even called the Boston Tea Party until the 1830s, when it was resurrected for contemporary partisan politics. Hmm, contemporary politicians reaching back in history for an imperfect memory to use for their pet political issues? No, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Right? Right? Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Intolerable Acts. The British understandably sought to punish Boston, but their crackdown was harsher than expected. In spring 1774, Parliament passed the Coercive Acts, which the colonists called the Intolerable Acts. Go ahead and click on the hyperlink so you can see an example of this from HBO's John Adams. The Intolerable Acts did several things. First, the Port of Boston was closed until the Teed was paid for, and this essentially will kill a city that depends on maritime trade. Second, Massachusetts towns are limited to one town meeting per year, and this is crazy because Democratic town meetings are considered sacred in New England. Third, members of the Massachusetts Council, or the Upper House, would no longer be elected by the colony's House of Representatives, but rather they would be appointed by a royal governor. So now you're giving away the elected franchise. The man responsible for making these appointments and controlling Boston is the British general Thomas Gage. In April, Gage and 3,000 redcoats set sail for Boston, where he would serve as the new Massachusetts governor. The major takeaway is that the coercive acts are a massive turning point in American history. Colonists from all over responded with anger and sympathy for Boston. People from as far away as North Carolina, the Caribbean, and even London sent donations to aid the suffering Bostonians. Other colonists protested British policies by pledging not to drink tea, expelling royal officials from their posts, and refusing to serve as jurors in royal courts. They also attended town meetings that called for an extra-legal meeting of a Continental Congress. And that is where we will leave off for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.